Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the When to Jump podcast. My name is Mike Lewis. This week on the show, an incredible conversation with Ruth Zuckerman, co-founder of Flywheel and SoulCycle, who has come out with a book called Riding High, How I Kissed SoulCycle Goodbye, Co-Founded Flywheel, and Built the Life I Always Wanted. And she joins me on the show to talk about her journey and the jumps that she made in her own life. Some really incredible stories and really all centered around this idea of how to show up and why showing up is so important. Um, a very authentic, up close and intimate look at her own life, um, really without holding back. So one of the more, uh, I would say, uh, high EQ conversations and one of the more high EQ people I've come across and, and so glad that uh, she was able to come on the show. So I'm going to take you right there. Enjoy the conversation right now with Ruth Suckerman, co-founder of SoulCycle and Flywheel. Ruth Zuckerman, thank you so much for joining me on the When to Jump podcast. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I've got so many questions, but I think I'm going to start with a very big basic one. It's not maybe basic for being hard, but for being straightforward. What is the biggest jump you've ever taken in your life? Oof. Uh, I would say starting Flywheel because of everything that came before it and you know, literally having Soul Cycle end in a way that I never in a million years would have predicted and actually f- figuring out that I had the resilience and I had the strength to go at it again. Did you see your life, maybe backing up a bit, did you see your life taking on an entrepreneurial journey and one in wellness and fitness and health as, as it has or as it did? Or, or is this something that, that kind of came onto its own? Um, I don't think the fitness and health part of it is surprising to me just because I started out at eight years old uh, taking dance classes and really devoting my life to dance. And so exercise and health was always really important to me. However, the entrepreneur part of it, oh my God, never would have predicted. I had have and had no experience in business. I, I, obviously, I have it now, but I had no experience in business. I was brought up in a family of doctors and um, therapists, so was never exposed to you know friends of my parents that were business people. So I really, that whole part of it really was a surprise for me. What got you into dance at eight years old? Was that a family thing? Was that a personal passion? I. Uh, It was a decision that was made by my mother who decided at eight years old that I was getting a bit of a belly, she tells, she told me. (laughs) Isn't that lovely? And uh, so she put me in dance class and I don't think she realized what a monster she was going to create in that I just got hooked very early on and uh, 
my mother, maybe one could tell already, it was very, um, she was tough and controlling and narcissistic. And as a little girl, there really wasn't much room for me. And I didn't have a voice. Uh, her opinion always mattered a lot more. And she always knew a lot more. And I think that in retrospect, I was drawn to the world of dance because it became my way of expressing myself since I couldn't use my voice. Were there any specific memories? And you had mentioned that neither of your parents, I believe you were raised in a family of doctors and therapists. And so you know, when when folks, I think there's a lot of listeners out there that can really relate to this, particularly in places outside of Silicon Valley or New York, where, you know, there isn't necessarily that that signal or that strain of entrepreneurship or creative thought. It sounds mm-hmm. like dance was able to provide some of that outlet for you. But what what did you find was helpful in kind of promoting it, whether you were, you know, eight years old or as you got older to think of things that you could do to color outside the lines when those people around you weren't doing it themselves? Uh, I think that you know, Mike, I'm not even sure how to answer it. Because the truth is, growing up, I had such low self esteem, um, based on, you know, the dynamic, I think, between myself and my parents. And I never thought I would have any of these capabilities to even draw a line outside of the box. I found dance. And then that became my passion and kind of this safety place because I knew I was good at it. And I knew I loved it. And it kind of allowed me to just get absorbed and not try anything else. And uh, what was really telling for me and my self esteem level an indication of my self esteem level was when I graduated college, moved to New York City, decided I was going to be a professional dancer. And guess what? It didn't happen. Uh, I chose the most competitive city when it comes to the arts because I knew I wanted to live in New York and went to auditions every day, got rejected every day. Sometimes I'd make it down to the last five people and then I'd get rejected. And I had to come to the tough decision and realization that this was not going to be a career for me and talk about low self-esteem. I I had no clue as to what I was going to do next. And what happened next? What happened next was I took a random job at a catering company in the West Village as an office manager, purely because I I was stretching to think of anything else I might be interested in. And I came up with food. I used to like to cook and bake. And so that's what drew me to that job. And I was miserable. I was sitting behind a desk all day, which I obviously realized I couldn't do that. I hated it. But I had no choice. I had to stick with it. I I needed a salary. And so the real answer to your question in terms of what I did, cringeworthy moment for all feminists out there, including myself, I got married. I thought that was my solution. I will find a man who will love me and who will be ambitious and he will take care of me. And then I don't have to... I don't have to think out, outside the box because he'll do everything for me. And that's what I did. Wow. I appreciate the, the, the honesty. And I think that that is um, something, regardless of gender, people sometimes use to fill a gap that they can't necessarily fill themselves at that time yes. or, or in general. Uh, and do you mind playing forward kind of w- what happened following and where we went from there? Of course, don't mind at all. Um, I got married. And the truth is... It, it wasn't the right marriage. It wasn't the right partnership. And 
unfortunately, I realized it very early on. But having come from a family where there really were no divorces, I just thought, well, this must be what marriage is. And I could never, ever fathom getting divorced. So I stuck with it. And I knew I always wanted to be a mom. And I thought, okay, well, that'll be the next step. I'll have kids. And then I'll just put all my focus on my kids and and everything will be fine. Well, obviously, that didn't things didn't work out that way. And I had my twin daughters, uh, the loves of my life. And uh, at age six, uh, there were things going on in the household that I really uh, didn't want them exposed to anymore. And I made the tough decision to literally pick up, pack our suitcases and the three of us left. Wow. And we've talked about a lot of different types of jumps in your story and then broadly in this community, but it sounds like obviously there were there were you know there were specific pieces of the environment that just didn't make sense and, and and weren't right for you. But at that time, I imagine there being so much reason to convince yourself just stick it out, kind of like you described in the early years of your marriage. Like what what propelled you past those fears? Because that just seems like a magnificent ability to kind of take on a really tough dynamic. It's funny. People would always say to me, "Wow, you're you're really strong. You know, you just picked up and left that marriage." And I never even knew I was strong. I just knew that I didn't have a choice. Um, as I was alluding to before, I had these six-year-old, adorable, innocent little girls, and they were growing up in a house with a lot of noise and, you know, yelling and and just behavior that wasn't great. And I just. In a, in a sense, I, in my mind, did it for them. I put them first when the reality was I should have put me just as first as they were. But you know what? If that was my reason, more power to it because it got me out of the house. And I, in reading up on your story, it sounds like was it around that time of the, the divorce where you were introduced to spin or started to put into your workout that had been more aerobic space? Is that right? Yes, I actually had had some experience during my marriage and actually a little bit before I got married in group fitness. It, it was the early 80s and I was teaching aerobics, which was what was happening in that day. And I loved it. And so that was kind of my first foray into what I obviously didn't know was going to end up having huge significance for me in my future. Um but I stopped working once the kids were born. So I was really out of the workplace. I was, again, another moment in my life where I was a fish out of water and had no idea what I was going to do. But one of my takeaways that I like to tell people when I look back is the is I like to talk about the importance of showing up and taking care of yourself when you're in those really difficult times, whether it's exercising, eating well, staying healthy. And so I was still a, a member of a gym that I belonged to on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And I noticed one day uh, there was this room where spin classes would take place. I had no idea what it was. But all I knew was I'd walk back and forth and kind of peer in and the room would be dark. And there'd be this amazing uh, dance music coming out of the room. There would be a room full of people on bikes moving in sync. It just seemed like this very cool, powerful thing that was going on in there. And it was a bit intimidating to walk in there. But I did one day. And that was when from the first class, I realized I was hooked. And I realized that th this was something way beyond exercise. This was a movement. It was an experience. It was cathartic. And it was mind and body together. Which 
you know, and I will preface this as I told you before the interview. You know, I'm a big a big believer that that fitness and particularly group fitness, uh, when done right, can be transformational uh, in both kind of the body and the mind. And I think as a perform from a professional athlete myself, I feel like there's something about sweating, in, you know, in the trenches with someone that that can take you to a place you know much farther away and, and, and in a better way than than kind of anything else. But at the time, I mean, what year was this? This was not like what everyone was thinking to go do, right? At all. Um, This was 1999. And so, yes, spinning was out there, but obviously nothing like it is now. And not a lot of people had caught on to it. And it kind of went through a lull for a little bit, but then it picked up traction again. And I feel that, you know, the next, I became an instructor at this Reebok club. And the next five years were years where I really kind of honed my technique, my method of teaching. And sure enough, my following was growing and growing. And that led me finally to the day to realize that this was a business that could stand on its own. Was it that clear to you when you started or was it, did it take trial and error? Was it, were there folks who took your classes that would talk to you afterwards? What was that kind of recipe like? Yes, it, uh, it was not like that in the beginning because first of all, I had to get much more confident with my teaching abilities and my ways of increasing my uh, membership in my classes. And uh, it took several years to be able to feel good about about my class and and what I did when I was up on that podium. And one of the biggest telltale signs for me in terms of this being a business on its own was I noticed that everybody who came to spin class only took spin class. I I was a member of this beautiful full service gym uh, that had basketball courts, uh, Olympic swimming pools, offered every genre of fitness you could imagine. But these people only came to spin class. And I thought that was a very telling moment of realization. Oh, my gosh. That's like what you want <laughs> when you like are studying business as someone being like, I will, you know, I'm sure and people probably were coming from different boroughs and taking the, oh, yeah. uh, you know, and all of that. And absolutely. Oh, my gosh. And, and for those who, who don't know whether it's flywheel or, or soul cycle or you know these concepts i mean you are referred to as like kind of like the godmother of this right of this movement <laughs> and i'm not just saying that like i as someone who founded independently of, of our conversations I, it's it, it really is a different way to think about fitness and people i remember there's an article i believe on you early on where someone said who's a, an active one of many active community members going to I think it was soul cycle they said this is their form of therapy you know they could yes. they could pay for going to see a therapist or they could go to your uh, to this experience that you kind of helped create was that what you had in mind when you when you made the jump to starting soul cycle Absolutely. Um, as I as I was forming my method, um, I was coming up with a way to teach the class. Quite frankly, that was as cathartic for me as it was for my riders. And I noticed, as I said very early on, that there was something about the physical exertion, the spinning of the wheels on a bike that goes nowhere. So you could close your eyes, you're not going to fall off. And you're getting stronger physically. But at the same time, you're combing through all the thoughts that are, you know, flying through your head. And the combination of those two components for whatever reason, caused you to feel empowered at the end of the 45 minutes. It was almost like this mini reinvention that would take place at the end of every class. And the the truth is, it happened for me too, up on the podium, even though I'm devoting all my energy to the class, 
I might be sharing difficult challenges that are going on in my life. I would never talk about them subjectively. I would talk about them in a very general way. And sure enough, people would come up to me after class and say, oh my God, I felt like you were speaking directly to me. I mean, that's what I'm going through right now. And the the takeaway from all of this, Mike, and the message I really want to convey to everyone, and now through my book, um, before it was just on the bike, is that we all go through very similar challenges. And so I want it to be comforting for people to know that they're never alone. They're never alone in the challenges they face. And if we can all be really authentic and truthful and not be afraid to talk about the challenges, I just think it makes everyone stronger. Which is, I think, so brave in a way because we all think we go through life with these unique instances that only, you know, ourselves are are kind of prone to, or we've made a mistake, or there's something that we can't fix. And so we're doomed. And and yet it seems like you created in perhaps a more unlikely place than one might think, um, a space for people to air that out and and be together in, in what we go through in these journeys, right? Exactly. And I mean, it's, I think, whoever's listening to this, you know, spinners especially know that it's very common to sometimes cry at the end of a class to emote in all kinds of ways and you know that's part of the catharsis and the release which as you said happens in these experiences I want to get to your your memoir in in a minute, but I first want to f- close the 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 lap, I guess, to stick with our spinning and cycling terms um, <laughs> on the story. So you you decide you're going to go out and do this. It's 2006, is that right? Yes, exactly. You're in New York City, which I, I would say there are there are some places that are less challenging to find real estate than New York City for a spinning concept. What do you do, and how do you get that first studio off the ground? So we started. Uh, we started the business myself and two co-founders and we immediately started looking at real estate and actually very early into the process we found a former dance studio and which was just interesting because obviously that's where I came from the, the dance studio and so there was something that I just completely related to the moment we saw it and I said we have to take this space and it was literally a hole in the wall on 72nd Street in the back of a building there was nothing nice about it It, there was a mirror already on one side of the wall and then we slapped a picture of a road on the back wall crammed the bikes in we had 33 bikes we bought a front desk from Ikea and we were ready to start our business and let me tell you something one bathroom no showers uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, um, you know, before we knew it, cut to crazy business and escalades lined up down the street. Oh my gosh. As if it was as if it was a nightclub. That's amazing. What's going through your mind at that point? I mean, when you now when the success started to come in was was it was it as crazy as it feels like it could be? Or? It, it's it's funny because I was so passionate about the idea and I really knew in my heart of hearts that it was going to be successful. That doesn't mean that doubts didn't creep in and insecurities and, oh, did I do the right thing? But I kind of knew deep down that it was going to succeed. But that being said, when we did really explode, it was surreal. It was just so exciting. And I don't want to diminish this, the all the success you had. I mean, to say the least, SoulCycle became a household name. Mm-hmm. You expanded tremendously. The business has continued to grow. But I want to get to the point that you started off with in my first question. 
the biggest jump you've ever made. You described the biggest jump not being starting Soul Cycle. So I want to kind of fast forward to what that moment was. Can you take us to where you were, what kind of life looked like at the point where you decided to take the jump and as you say, kiss Soul Cycle goodbye and move on to what's next and why that was so critical for you? So that was literally round three. If, you know, I've already covered... Uh, having to give up my dance career and leaving a marriage. So now I'm in the third iteration of, I'm going to use the expression again, a fish out of water, having no idea what I'm going to do next. I left Soul Cycle and I thought, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to go back to the big box gyms and leave this studio that was my baby where my entire community was? And the thought of going back with my shoes in a backpack and teaching at a big box gym was, I mean, incredibly depressing. And so the hardest part and one of the hardest things I've ever done, and again, this is all before Flywheel, was leaving Soul Cycle, but then actually coming to the tough decision that I am now going to go back to Soul Cycle as just an instructor in a business that was mine. And I'm keep in mind, I'm a single mom now with twin girls in high school, and I have to support us. So that was one of the hardest moments for me. And again, talk about showing up. Another example of showing up, doing what I had to do. I did that for two years, Mike. I walked into that studio every day. I thought I'd get another gray hair every day. But you know what? I'd get up on the podium. I'd hit the play button. And suddenly, in those 45 minutes, I was in my element doing what I do with my community, sharing, inspiring, you know, back and forth. And it all kind of went away for those 45 minutes. And to bring that full circle, two years later was when I met my future co-founders of Flywheel. So if I hadn't been there, maybe that wouldn't have happened. Oh, I love, love, love the showing up piece because I think I, I hear from people quite a bit. And one of the things that people look for today as they think of making a change is this kind of overnight success, kind of, you know, silver oh bullet. And so much of what we talk about in this community is what, what I call the, the 10,000 unsexy steps that you have to go through. Yes. Uh, and that was actually a, came from a conversation with a woman who, who ended up becoming a professional cyclist, but talked about you know, the, the crashes and the, the running out of money and the worries. And then I think you bring up this kind of psychological piece. I can only imagine going back as an employee of something that was your brainchild and your identity, right? Like that's you or Ruth of SoulCycle now reporting to somebody else like that. That takes that takes a lot. It, it And it did. It took a lot. Um, but again, in retrospect, I go to, you know, everything happens for a reason. And I was lucky enough to meet my future co-founders and start this incredible business round two. So tell us about that. How did you meet and what was the next steps? So uh, my two partners were uh, partners in private equity. And basically, one of my partners started taking classes at SoulCycle the summer of 2009, which was our third summer there and saw, you know, crowds of people in and out of this space and literally said, started crunching the numbers and said, I want to get in on this. And the fall came of 2009 and he had set up, he and his partner set up a meeting with actually another instructor, 
from SoulCycle because they needed to find their creative person. They had no idea that I wasn't an owner anymore. And complete, so they thought I was untouchable. Completely coincidentally, this instructor who they targeted came to me and said, you know, I'm going to this meeting. You should come with me. And I thought, great, I'll definitely come with you. And the two of us went. We had a couple of meetings with them. And they looked at each other and they said, well, we really don't want her, but we want her. And I said to them, well, you can have me because I'm not an owner anymore. And I think their jaws dropped. And I said, and actually my non-compete's done, so I'm completely free. And that's how it started. Oh, my gosh. And <laughs> And, and you started in New York and, and went from there. Yeah, that was the uh, fall of 2009. We started really getting to work on it in November, and we opened our first flywheel February 2010. Gosh, and one of the, so I'm a, I, I'm a somewhat recent convert. I have a, a group of friends, uh, and I go to the Sunnyvale location, uh, actually from uh-huh. Palo Alto. So again, fast forwarding to more recently, where was the company and what led you to think, okay, there's, there's another hurdle or another new chapter to open? So we opened our doors at our first uh, flagship location in the Flatiron area of New York. And within a month, we were selling out classes. And I thought, okay, that's it. Like, we're going to do great. And um, it's also, you know, there are certain advantages to being second in market. Um, there was so much I could learn from yeah. my experience at SoulCycle and, and kind of... Uh, use the uh, parts of the business that worked and improve upon the ones that didn't. And so that was a real help for us in getting a leg up quickly. Oh, my gosh. So so we were on a path. Gosh. And was it hard as the business grew and became more successful to think of something that was next? Or did you have that in mind? We were so focused on expansion and doing the best job we could with each studio and remaining as hands-on as possible. And I really feel that that was so much of the success of Flywheel when we were there in the first four years. We were so um, adamant on building a culture where everyone felt accepted and treated equally. And um, that was new. And I really believe in um, a business, the culture comes from kind of the trickle down theory of who your leaders are. And in a very simplistic way, Jay and I are very nice people. And uh, one quality, which is not always good, is we both need to be liked by everybody. And so that actually served us well in that we we drew a, a group of employees that just learned to love this business as much as we did. Wow. We gave them options when we hired them. And they just wanted it to succeed as much as we did. And that was so such a big part of the formula of our success. Wow. And I, I can tell that, and I'm sure anyone listening who goes to Flywheel can, can sense that as well. Uh, what was it that, that, that felt like the turning point for you for, for leaving and for moving on to something new and, and then writing, writing high? Yes. Well, a lot happened since then. We had uh, spent the first four years till 2014, you know, ramping the business. By 2014, we had 22 studios at that point, And one of our strate- strategic investors uh, showed an interest in, in acquiring Flywheel. And it was a little scary because we didn't know if we were ready to, to sell. But at the same time, we saw a lot of copycats popping up in the in the field. And something in us said, maybe this is the right time. And so our strategic investor acquired the business in 2014. And 
while that was a really exciting thing because now the business was going to be scaled to a whole nother level, it was tough because things changed very quickly and my two co-founders left within the first couple months, wow. which I didn't anticipate. And so in many ways, I kind of felt alone and um, and also in many ways, kind of in that not quite as extreme, but in a, in a place again where I was unfamiliar with my environment and things were, you know, I didn't know what a quote unquote strategic operative initiative was. I was like, why don't they just say plan? I don't understand. <laughs> but ultimately, uh, the day came where I just thought it was time and time to do something new and, and experience something new. And um, the book thing happened because throughout my career, people were hearing my story unfold and saying, you know, you really should write a book. And again, I thought, oh, that's nice. That's flattering. But I never took it seriously. And then one day someone came into my life, um, a very impressive artist uh, who I really respected. And he said, you should write a book. And I said the same thing. Oh, very nice. And then he said, no, I don't think you understand. I'm going to actually take you to meet a literary agent to talk to. And I said, okay, nothing to lose. And I did. And by the time I got home that night, I had a contract in my inbox. Oh, my goodness. And exactly. Tell, I, I, I think the premise is amazing. And for those, you know, who are, you know, just taken by your story, which I think many of us are, it seems like it's a perfect kind of read to get kind of not only the, the and I think like the tremendous success and, and kind of career trajectory you've described kind of in more detail, but really your philosophy around both work and also in life. So the book is called Riding High, How I Kissed Soul Cycle Goodbye, Co-Founded Flywheel, and Built the Life I Always Wanted. In a nutshell, what would you, how would you describe the book for someone who's thinking about it? I would describe it as a memoir slash business book. It's for everyone. It's for men and women. It's for people who find themselves in a place where they feel stuck and can't even imagine coming up with what's next. It's for people that never had a business career but want to start a business. It's for struggling artists who never would think in a million years that they would find anything beyond their passion in the arts. Um, it's for so many people, Mike. And the thing that's been so gratifying about this book is literally the feedback I get from people who tell me specific parts of the book that resonated for them. And I'm just so happy that it, it does just that resonate for so many people. Absolutely. And so I, yeah, I think that the story itself and the jumps you've made has that effect on people. And the book is such a great way to, to get that message out. So I highly encourage folks to check it out. I was going to ask you on that note, do, is your life just crazy with how many times people come up to and say what I was gushing to you about? Like, oh my gosh, the class at 8.30 and down. Like, you come across as like the everyone's best friend. Like, and so with that goal of yours to be liked, I think is working really well. So is that is that like how life is now? And, and what's next? It is how life is. And I'm proud of it because I really think it came to me through my own authenticity and my ability to be really honest in my answers and in the way I relate to people because Again, I think it's that authenticity that people relate to and people want to be a part of. And 
it gives them support and it's real. And I think, you know, in this world we live in today where there's so much that's not real, um, hashtag Instagram, it's really challenging. You know, we're, we're aspiring to lives that just aren't even attainable. And so I like to remind people that actually all that stuff isn't real and actually isn't even necessary. And so I am really enjoying that part of it and the reputation I've built for myself. Um, in terms of what's next, I'm deeply uh, working on it and I don't have an answer for you yet. Right now in the in the immediacy, I've been pretty busy going on speaking tours and giving keynotes and appearing on panels and talking about, you know, lessons I've learned through my life. And uh, my biggest theme is, as I mentioned before, resilience and reinvention. And that's a big part of the book. Incredible. Well, I can't wait to follow your story further and and hopefully ride together next time you're out here in the Bay or if I'm in New York. I would love that. Um, You know, just an incredible story. And I appreciate the candor. And like you said, the honesty that that uh, that isn't you know sadly isn't widespread in, in how we live our lives today and you and Soul Cycle Flywheel and this book you know are able to bring that out so Ruth Zuckerman thank you so much for for joining the When to Jump podcast today I had so much fun thanks Mike. Wow, what an incredible story from Ruth, and what incredible grit and this idea of perseverance, but really just showing up that I think goes into every jump. That is it for the show today. And before you go, I wanted to give all the When to Jump listeners a quick update on things. After doing over 80 episodes of this show, we will be taking a hiatus in a few weeks. Our last episode will be on May 7th. And I know that sounds weird and crazy to say, but as I said, it is a hiatus And it feels a little bit bittersweet for sure to be pausing the show. Um, But it is because I am taking many jumps of my own to to really reinvest in the when to jump future and continue to grow our platform. I've been uh, taking classes at business school at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. I've been able to guest lecture at the school and elsewhere. And we're working on a bunch of other things that I think will continue to make when to jump bigger and better. So I plan to come back to the podcast. In the meantime, please, please, please... Stay with our online community and sign up for our newsletter if you haven't yet. That can be found at whentojump.com. That's W-H-E-N-T-O-J-U-M-P.com. Or follow us on social media. Hopefully do both. Social media is just at whentojump. You can sign up through the newsletter from our website. Again, please reach out through the newsletter. Sign up. Tell us how you're thinking, what you're feeling. And I do plan to be back because this podcast has been incredible. It really has been something that's changed my life and continues to impact it in in big and small ways with every email I receive. So I'm not going anywhere. Um, I just am making sure to reinvest in all the potential and great developments that are going on with When to Jump. And so um, I, as they say in showbiz, it's not goodbye, it's see you later. Please go to the website and drop your email. Follow us at When to Jump. But for now, my name is Mike Lewis. This is When to Jump, and I'll see you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. 
Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.